0: Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. In London, this is The Economist, and you're listening to Babbage, a weekly conversation on science and technology. I'm Kenneth Couquier, senior editor and the host of Babbage. For years, scientists have predicted how artificial intelligence will change our world, and it quickly became a much-loved theme in Hollywood. <laughs> R2-D2, your I'm an android. <laughs> Lieutenant Commander Data. He's not a man. Machine. Terminator. Underneath, it's a hyperalloy combat chassis. My positronic brain has several layers of shielding to protect me from power surges it would be possible for you to run a cranial unit and take it with you. But might history, rather than Hollywood, provide a guide to the future of AI? More about that later in the show. We'll also hear from scientists who've discovered an ominous connection between obesity and autism. But first, an algorithm promises to eliminate hateful images, videos, and audio from the Internet. In the wake of the mass shooting at a gay club in Orlando, U.S. officials say that the gunman had at least been partially radicalized through the web. This is creating a further push to stop the flow of hate speech on social media. Professor Hani Farid of Dartmouth College in America has developed an algorithm that he claims could detect, for example, Islamic State content online. With me to delve into this topic is Anunno Bhattacharya, who is writing a piece for this week's issue. No, how big a problem is this?
1: It really is a huge problem, Ken, and it seems to be getting worse. I mean, one example is that a senior recruiter for al-Qaeda who was killed in a drone strike in 2011, he still is inspiring people to acts of terror even now, five years after
0: his death. So he found his immortality on YouTube. Quite, Okay, so how does Dr. Fareed plan to stop, for example, terrorists speaking from their graves on the Internet? Dr. Fareed's technology produces
1: something that he calls a robust hash. He does this by essentially boiling down a picture, a video, or an audio file into a numeric code. And then, using that numeric code, you can search a database of such codes to identify troublesome video or photographic or audio content.
0: Okay, so how does that actually work? How do you create
1: a robust hash? So in the case of a photograph, what this does is first it converts it to a black and white photo, then it shrinks it to a certain size, then it breaks it out into a grid, and then for each of those grid cells, it maps the intensity across the cell and then uses the intensity of the brightness of those cells to generate a unique code for that picture.
0: Great. And so for the photograph, we have this unique code that represents the image What do they do for the video because you've got many different moving images?
1: Dr. Farid doesn't want to reveal the full details of that because if he does, then the possibility is that people will easily be able to get round this detection technology. But clearly it's some version of the earlier technology that he used for photographs. You could imagine that frame by frame, you could break down a video and assign it a code and then hash all of those together to create a single code for the entire video.
0: Now, what if someone has changed a single pixel in either the image or the video? Suddenly, the hash would be different. There must be something special about this robust hash that obviates the problem.
1: Yeah, that's right. That's really the key to the robust hash, as he calls it. Because of the way that they fiddle with the picture before constructing the hash, by um, applying these transformations, by turning it into black and white, by squeezing it down to a certain size, um, you're getting some uniformity. Now, if you apply that to millions of pictures out there, it turns out that you can get that same code back under a variety of conditions. So photoshopping a picture, for example, will still produce the same hash.
0: But there would still be the problem that a, that a human being would have to identify it and pre-identify it as offensive material. If not, it could ensnar material that would not be from Islamic State, but just happens to be about a summer camp in Yemen. Yes,
1: absolutely. And what is key, though, is that once that is done, once somebody has reliably flagged the information, the failure rate for the uh, hashing technique is tiny, estimated to be about one in 50 billion. There is indeed a risk. And of course, the technology could be applied if it gets out to all sorts of nefarious purposes.
0: How do you think this could be uh, dangerous in the wrong hands?
1: You could imagine a repressive regime using this technology to suppress dissent. So a video comes along that is uncomfortable for the regime, it uh, applies the hash to it, and then suddenly this video then disappears from the internet, YouTube, Twitter, wherever.
0: So opposition candidates might be removed from the internet so only the party in power can get their message out.
1: Clearly there is a potential. I think, though, it would require the social networks themselves to collaborate on such suppression as well.
0: When do you expect this technology to be deployed? Dr. Fried said this is
1: ready to go. Now it's a matter of the social media company deciding whether they're ready
0: to adopt this. I don't know. Thank you very much. Thanks, Ken. Next, a new study on mice shows that obese mothers have a 50 percent higher risk of having offspring with autism. Here is one of the study's authors, Morio Costa matioli on the line from Baylor College of Medicine in Houston.
2: So the connection between brain and, and the gut is perhaps more powerful than we previously thought.
0: Previous studies have shown that kids with autism have a misbalance in the gut bacteria. This gave the scientists a hint to what may be going on.
2: My aha moment was when we look at the composition of the gut in the animals, and by looking at the composition of the animals, we almost pretty much, we could predict whether the animals have a abnormal behavior. Although that was a, a correlation experiment, at that moment I said, ah, so this could be really the mechanism underlying the uh, social defects in, in those animals.
0: When the scientists looked at the different species of gut bacteria, they found big differences in behavior of the offspring of obese mice and normal mice. Co-author Shelley Buffington explains how the social behavior of autistic mice was different. They
3: uh, preferred to spend more time with an empty cup versus time with a mouse. If they were just to put together to perform a one-on-one interaction with each other, they spend a lot less time in contact with a stranger than a normal mouse would. So autism-like behaviors in mice with these social deficiencies.
0: Once the researchers had found the connection, they thought that maybe they could alter the gut bacteria and restore normal social behavior. What's more, it's just one species of bacteria that is responsible for major changes in how the mice would relate to other mice.
2: By introducing
3: a normal gut microbiome, into a mouse with an altered microbiome, we were able to reverse the behavioral phenotypes that we saw.
0: They were able to restore the autistic mice to normal social behavior by, well, having the mice eat each other's excrement, which they do naturally anyway. Though the researchers are not suggesting that we eat each other's feces, thankfully, They see great possibilities for the future of autism treatment. For humans, probiotics with the right bacteria could be the strategy for the future. Here is Dr. Costa Mattioli.
2: Perhaps we could intervene uh, with the gut and restore some of the symptoms in other neurodevelopmental disorders, including autism.
0: The research is still in its early stages, and hopefully new treatments will become available. If you have something to add about this week's show, please find us on Facebook or Twitter. You can tweet us directly at Economist Radio, or you can email us at radio at On last week's show, we discussed how studios are switching to video game technology to make special effects. We received lots of comments on social media. One person posted on Facebook, quote, Imagine viewings by prospective buyers of aircraft, say the 787, being done over VR. If you have anything to contribute this week, please do so online. Next, artificial intelligence is taking off. Though the benefits are a myriad, concerns loom more than ever about whether the machines will destroy our jobs or destroy humanity. I mean,
1: with
3: artificial intelligence, we are summoning the demon. You know, you know all those stories where there's the guy with the pentagram and the holy water, and he's like, yeah, you sure he can control the demon. (laughs) did not work out.
0: That was Elon Musk speaking in 2014. With me to discuss why we are so afraid of artificial intelligence is Tom Standage, our deputy editor. Tom, welcome. Hello. Tom, what's everyone worried about? Well, AI is interesting because it sort of
3: brings together two primeval fears that people have about technology. One is that new technology is going to take all our jobs. And we're familiar with you know, what the Luddites thought about weaving and the automation of weaving. And there have been many other examples. People started to worry when computers and robots started to a- appear in offices and on factory floors. In the 60s, there was a big automation panic then. There was another one in the 80s when PCs showed up. That meant you know, accountants were all going to be out of work. So this happens quite regularly. And it's a sort Sort of familiar pattern, but what AI also invokes in people is the sort of Frankenstein fear that, uh, and this goes way back to you know the myth of Prometheus, the idea that mankind is going to create the thing that destroys it. And again, that's a very common trope in sci-fi, but also in in ancient myths, you know, the golem Frankenstein as, as well. And so these are two fears that people have about different
0: technologies, but in the case of AI, they have both of these fears at the same time. So are any of these fears well grounded? Because in the case of automation in terms in terms of blue-collar labor. The history of the 20th century was one of job displacement. People are saying that the algorithm is going to replace white-collar labor. Is there any truth to that?
3: Well, I think it's very useful to look at these historical analogies. I think if we want to figure out what the future of AI looks like, history is actually a very helpful place to look. And what I've been very struck by as I've done this is the parallels between the debate that was happening two centuries ago about automation, in particular of weaving, but also industrialization is just getting started then and the things that people are saying now. So back then, this was called the machinery question. And this was framed by the economist David Ricardo. And he said, and this could be something one speaking today. He says, the substitution of machinery for human labour may render the population redundant. And at the same time, you have people railing. um, Thomas Carlyle rails against the demon of mechanism. It sounds just like what we heard from Elon Musk just now. He's worried that the disruptive power of steam and automation is going to overset whole multitudes of workmen. So we have seen this movie before, and we do know how it plays out, which is that in the short term, there is this displacement. You have to kind of change the way that jobs are done because part a lot of it gets automated, but that actually creates more value. The other pieces of the process that haven't been automated by a machine, uh, that still have to be done by humans, become more valuable. If you look at what happened with weaving, for example, it wasn't the whole process that was automated, and as a result, the bits that were automated created more demand for people to do the bits that weren't. The price of cloth went down, the demand for cloth went up, and the result was actually more people working in weaving at the end of the 19th century in America than at the beginning, for example, if you look at the statistics. And we've seen the same in In many other previous examples of automation with, say, ATMs, did they put bank tellers out of work? Actually, no. What happened was that you needed fewer tellers in each branch, but that meant that the cost of opening new branches went down. And so banks opened more branches and employed more people in sales and customer service. So the actual number of bank employees went up. But this means that people have to move from one task which hasn't got any automation to another task as a result of it. And it's this displacement that's the difficult part. In the long run, this is great. worry about it causing mass unemployment, I don't think. But we do have to help people through the transition that it will require. Okay, so we have jobs, but do we still have our lives? Aren't they going to kill us all? The idea that if we can build machines that really are cleverer than humans, that we might have to figure out how to control them. A lot of people think that's a legitimate concern, but that's decades away at best. I mean, people working in the field point to these systems that they've built now. They can do all sorts of wonderful things, but they can only do one thing. You build a system to do image recognition or speech recognition or whatever. That's a very different thing from a sort of Terminator style robot that can plan things or Hal 9000 in, in in the film 2001 who learns to lip read. I mean, these are, these are not general intelligences. So I think we need to distinguish between the theoretical long-term threat, which is a very interesting theoretical problem. But as one knows, AI researcher Andrew Ng likes to put it. He says it's like worrying about overpopulation on Mars. You know, we haven't even set foot on Mars. Now, maybe one day we'll run out of space on Mars, but it's kind of not the thing we should be worrying about right now. So I think those concerns are overblown. I think they're an interesting philosophical question. But actually, the the immediate concern is how do we uh, handle the impact that AI and automation could have on the labour force?
0: What is going on right now that makes you optimistic that there's a lot of substance behind the momentum?
3: Yes, AI has been notorious for um, promising more than it could deliver, right since the field began in the 50s when a bunch of researchers got together and reckoned that if they really put their minds to it for a summer, they could probably, you know, build an intelligent machine. And uh, that uh, prompts hollow laughter from researchers today. The big difference this time around, because there have been previous outbursts of enthusiasm for AI is that this time it's very widely deployed. Everyone with a smartphone or anyone who goes on the internet is using this technology without realising it. And that's because the specific technology that has really changed things in the last five years, a technology called deep learning, is now embedded in so many systems like Google search engine, Facebook uses it for image recognition, uh, Siri uses it for speech recognition, uh, self-driving cars like Tesla's cars. Ironically, Elon Musk is worrying about this, but his own cars are using this this technology to, you know, to stay on the road and steer themselves. So um, unlike previous examples of AI, this one is really, really widely deployed. And um, the deep learning technique is remarkable because it's so versatile. It can be used in all of these different areas. Basically, anywhere you've got mountains of data to train a system on, you can get it to do wonderful things. So that's very exciting and that's why there's been so much progress. But we need to uh, not conclude that that means that sort of uh, human-level intelligent systems Uh, that might take over the world are just around the corner. Just because there's been progress doesn't mean there is an
0: immediate danger. Tom, thank you very much. Thank you. That's all for this episode. You've been listening to Babbage. To read Tom's special report on AI or Adano's piece on algorithms, pick up the forthcoming issue of The Economist. Or if your preferred field of science is Brexitology, then be sure not to miss our special Brexit Reaction podcast on Britain's historic EU referendum this week. In London, this is The Economist.
1: The Economist.
0: Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. Good credit. From a local business to a global corporation.